Lee gave away the good news. <laughs> the good news is we have a Savior named Jesus. And uh, we believe some pretty unbelievable things about him. <laughs> we believe that he is 100% God. And yet, because he loves you and because he loves me, he would take on flesh, right? Like that he would, he would come 100% God and put himself in the body of a man and be nailed to a cross because he loves you. And if we're just completely honest, right, that's a pretty unbelievable thing. That's a pretty unbelievable thing. And so this morning, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk more about that. We're going to recognize that, man, Jesus is the answer to our unanswerable questions. <laughs> that's pretty unbelievable, too. And uh, we're going to think about what we want to do in response to that. All right? So, um, hey, if you're new with us, we are so glad you're here. And uh, even if you're not... Um, we want to encourage you, if you want to follow along with us in the Bible app, uh, you can find uh, an event for Christ Community in the Bible app. Um, find that in all the stores and all that stuff. I don't have the spiel down, but it's there. And uh, notes and passages for today's sermon are in that. And so I um, just encourage you to, to find that if you're a, a Bible on your phone type of person. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to be in Mark 12. And, uh, and then I'll have it on the screen here in just a minute. So... Uh, if you're new, if you weren't here last week, I want to I uh, kind of bring us up to speed with where we are as we finish out uh, a year in the Gospel of Mark. So last week we talked about, uh, we, we saw this encounter between uh, Jesus and a scribe, and he talks about the most important thing. He talks about priorities, and so we, had, we were challenged to think about what our priority was and, and whether or not we were prioritizing Christ. And we use this little uh, image, this picture to do it. And so, you know, we recognize that there's a lot of brokenness in the world. I maybe had 10 conversations before church this morning, and in most of those conversations, uh, if not all of them, there was some recognition that, man, there's some things that are, just aren't right. There's brokenness. Uh, and that brokenness is not God's perfect design, right? And, and sin in our lives and in the world is, is what's gotten us to that point. Um, but what's amazing is what Jesus did, right? Believing the unbelievable, that he died and then he rose again so that we didn't have to stay in that brokenness. And when we turn and give our lives completely to him, make him the priority, believe that he truly is the son of God, then we have an opportunity to be restored, redeemed, made new, and returned to God's perfect design for our lives. And we grow in that. And so we challenged each other to think about where are we in this picture are we in our brokenness? Are we, are we maybe just stuck somewhere? What's our next step? And so uh, we ask ourselves, is Christ really a priority in our lives? Do I know Christ? And so uh, that kind of sets the scene for a little bit of where we're going to be today as we read this passage in Mark 12, 35 and 44. So let's read that passage together, and then, uh, and then we're going to pray for our time in the Word. It says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. And he also said in his teaching, 
Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. While sitting across from Temple Treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus. It's unbelievable that you would, would come in the form of a man and die for us to give us an opportunity to live, to be returned to that design and plan that you have for our lives. Would you draw us together, Lord? Would you draw us together and unite us in your word and in the gospel? Would you teach us? Would you convict us? Would you challenge us to grow? Would you continue to lead us back into brokenness to share good news of who Jesus is with all those we would meet? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I, like Jeff, have three kids. Um, my wife, Caitlin, and I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and uh, I think she's seven months now. I, the third one, you just lose track. <laughs> and um, I, one thing that I, I don't lose track of is um, the story of my firstborn, Tinley, being born. And uh, if, if you've had kids and you can remember back that far, you might uh, know what it's like to be preparing for the arrival of your first child. Everything has to be right. There has to be a plan. The baby registries must not leave anything out. I mean, uh, Tinley starts with a T and everything needed to be right down to the T for T, right? I mean, it was just a big deal. And Tinley's uh, expected arrival in the world was January 9th. Well, me being the planner and the financial tightwad, really needed that child to be here by December 31st. Who doesn't want to start the tax returns a little bit earlier, amen? And so we watched and we planned, and I even planned to take time off that, you know, that week, that last week of the year after Christmas. And I bet, we lived in Lexington at the time, uh, I can pretty much tell you how many steps it takes to walk every hallway in the Fayette Mall. Because we walked to the Fayette Mall for days and days and days trying to get this child to come out before the clock struck midnight on the new year. I had a plan, I was ready. Tinley wasn't on that game plan. She, she wasn't there with me. And so um, we, we waited and we waited and we waited. So we come to January 8th. She's due on January 9th, right? And at this point, you know, you kind of have given up. Like, all right, I guess she's just going to show up whenever she shows up. And so that night, it was a Sunday night. I'd gone to play basketball with a bunch of friends, came home sweaty. I was tired, and I went to bed without taking a shower. It's gross. Don't judge me. Been in bed a couple hours. Caitlin rolls over and she says, Blake, my water just broke. <laughs> First time dads, do as I say, not as I do. 
because I rolled over and I said, oh shoot, do I have time to take a shower? <laughs> she graciously allowed me to. How, like, I have a great wife, y'all. And I went and took a shower before we went to the hospital and Tinley made her arrival on January the 9th. And she has been a blessing and a joy in our life. I tell that story because I don't know if this is a thing for you, but it's a thing for me. I like to, to be on a plan. I like to know what's happening in life. I like to figure things out. I don't like to just fly by the seat of my, my pants. But there are so many times in life where uh, we may think we have a plan and it doesn't work out the way that we think, or uh, we're not exactly sure what the plan is going to be, and so we just don't do anything. You know, Scripture um, affirms this in our lives. Proverbs 19.21, it may be something you've heard before. Many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. We try to plan a lot of things. We try to figure a lot of things out. But so often, man, the Lord is just in control. He is, he is in charge. And we're left to, to kind of pick up the pieces and figure out how this all works together. And, and as we think about what this might look like in our lives, it's important that we recognize that this attitude that we sometimes get that, that we're going to plan out our life. We're going to figure out exactly how things are supposed to be. This is the same attitude that we see in the scribes that, that Jesus is, is teaching about in this passage. All right? So look at me. Look at uh, verse 38 with me, if you would. It says, Jesus said this in his teaching. Beware of the scribes who, who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and, and the places of honor at the banquets. These scribes had spent their entire lives, we talked a little bit about this last week, studying, reading, learning the law, and, and so much of it was so that they could do these things, right? They wanted to be people of influence. They wanted to be the people that were honored. They wanted to be the people that were greeted in the marketplace and well-respected. And there's nothing intuitively wrong with that, right? Except for the fact that but this was their plan for their life. It was their plan for their life. We've got it under control. And this outward expression of that, where everything looked like it was perfect and put together, uh, it, it communicated to everyone else that, that they knew what was best. And yet everyone could see right through it, right? That they didn't. And I can't help but wonder if, man, some of our lives end up looking like some of this. We want to go around in, in our best clothes. We want to look the part. We want to be greeted and known in the marketplace. We want the best seats in the synagogue. We want to be honored at bank. Like, like we want to have our lives put together. And the attitude that begins to develop is that we believe that we know, we determine what's best for ourselves. Right? How many times, maybe you've even been given that advice. You're trying to get somebody's advice and they look back at you and they say, well, only you know what is best for you. And this attitude, it begins to creep into our heart, and it begins to, to develop and take over, and before long, we're, we're believing it, and we're telling ourselves, we know what's best for our marriage. We know what's best for our finances. We know what's best for our kids. We know what's best for our career, or we know the plan for getting to our perfect retirement. Let me ask you a question. Have we let God in on our plans? 
Have we let him in on our plans? You see, when we set our plans without God, we kind of relax on being ready to go where he sends us. It's really easy to do. I'll give you an example. If I don't let Caitlin in on my plans to watch Purdue football on Saturday afternoon, and at the same time, she's been planning in her mind to go to Costco on Saturday afternoon, what do you think is happening on Saturday afternoon? Costco! <laughs> Costco is happening on Saturday afternoon. That never happens at our house. You know, it might be the second most important question in our marriage after will you marry me. What are our plans? Please, honey, tell me, what are our plans? She's very gracious. We do talk about it. I'm, you, know, you heard how good she is. She let me take a shower. How many times do we do that with God? We often fail to ask God about his plan for our lives because subtly and over time we've developed this attitude that we know, we believe we know what is best for our lives. And then when we don't know his plan, we do what we think is best for us. We fill up our lives with fun outings, plenty of downtime, the sports that we want to watch, the extracurriculars that we want to do. We go out to the places to eat that we want to go out to eat. We just do what we want because we have wrongly believed that we determine what's best for our lives. And it's tricky because it's so subtle. Don't I have the right to do that? I've earned this. Wouldn't God want me to be happy? You see, when we say we have faith in God, but we don't actually trust him with our plans, we end up with more questions than answers. Things that, things that seemed solid in our lives all of a sudden are up in the air. Because if we know what's best for our lives, maybe we know what's best about some of these other things as well. The scribes, they were living their lives in a way that led to more questions than answers. And as people watched the way that they lived their lives, they were supposed to be the religious leaders, but were these guys for real? They looked like their lives were put together, but what was happening under the surface? And by the way, if they really believed in God, why were they devouring widows' homes? That doesn't sound like a very religious thing to do. It just doesn't seem right. It seems unjust, especially when they are decked out in their expensive robes. You see, when we live our lives by our plans, we end up with more questions than answers. And Jesus, as he's teaching this day in the temple, is speaking to the reality, to that reality about the scribes. We go back and we see something else that he teaches in verses 35 to 37. It says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked a question. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? So he's questioning what they've been teaching. David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. And then Jesus helps them to see the tension, right? He says, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? He's like, wait a second. What they've been teaching you, it, it almost doesn't make any sense. Because how could David say that, that his Lord 
declared to his Lord, like if that were his son. It doesn't, there's a tension here, right? And Jesus knows that he is the answer. <laughs> that he is both the son of David because he's born as a man, but that he is also his Lord because he is 100% God. And in this picture, right, Jesus becomes the answer to the unanswerable question. He asked the question that everybody's wondering about. What we, what we know through Scripture is that Jesus is teaching them about who he is, that he's both God and man. And, and that, this is why he, he is full of so many other things. He's both our Lord and our Savior. He's the answer to the questions that seem unanswerable in our lives. He helps resolve the tensions that we feel on a daily basis as we try to do the right thing. Jesus is the answer. To this unanswerable question. You know, this idea, this concept of the fullness of God, it's so difficult for us as human beings to grasp. We read in Colossians 2, 9 and 10 about this fullness. It says, for the entire fullness of God's nature. Think about what that phrase means, right? Like, all that the God of the universe could be dwells bodily in Christ. <laughs> like, everything that the God of the universe could be dwells in this one man who is Christ. And you have been filled by him. Whoa. Like, 100% of God is in this man Christ, and you have been filled by him. That's unbelievable. He is the head over every ruler and authority. The fullness of God, both, both God and man. But that fullness carries over to so many other attributes that we often don't think about. We read in John 1, 16 and 17. It says, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, right? How many of you can, can sit here today and, and, and honestly not say that there are things in your life that, like, you can't explain them outside of the grace of God? Like, I don't know how, how something so good could have happened to me. We've received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I want you to think about grace, and I want you to think about truth. Grace is this idea of a free gift, like it overlooks a wrong, and truth is pointing out the wrong. Like those two things seem paradoxical. They don't go together, and yet Jesus is full of them both. And then finally we read in Acts 2.36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Both Lord and Messiah. And Messiah. You see, when we take time to reflect on our brokenness and the things in our lives that just aren't right, we really, really love the idea of Jesus as our Savior. Save me, Jesus. Save me. Fix my brokenness. Make me whole again. Give me freedom, Jesus. Save me. But he's also our Lord, Messiah. And we really like for Jesus to save us, but do we like to let him be the Lord? Or would we rather believe that subtle lie that says we know what's best for us? We know what's best for us. Letting him be the Lord of your life is the first step in answering the questions that seem unanswerable. Life includes so many tensions without clear answers, right? When it comes time to buy a home, do I rent or do I buy? 
do I stay at this job or do I go to a new one? Do I pay my bills or do I feed my family? That may be a tension you're living in. Do I give my extra time to my spouse or to my kids or to myself? When I go out with friends, can I have three drinks or is two enough, right? Like there's all these tensions daily. There's something that we're coming up against where it's not quite clear what the answer should be. And when the answer seems unclear, when the questions are unanswerable with our human logic, too many times we're resting on this little lie that says we know what's best for us instead of saying, Jesus is my Lord, and I'm going to give myself first to him. Jesus is the answer to our unanswerable questions. And he, in his fullness, guides us and directs us and fills us, not by what we choose to give to him, but in who we choose to give ourselves to. You see, when we feel fulfill, fulfilled in life, when we feel as though we are doing God's will, it's not because we've done the right thing. It's because we've given ourselves to the right person. When you realize that Jesus truly is the answer, it allows you to put a greater faith in him than what you could have ever imagined or, or planned or figured out on your own. And that's exactly what we see in the widow. I love the irony that, that Mark, the, the author, uses in his writing here. He points out that scribes are devouring widows' homes, right? And then he turns around and he uses a widow as an example to call out those who, like the scribes, were rich. So read along with me, if you would, starting in verse 41. Sitting across from the treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others, for they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Mark is, man, like, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these passages. I love it because the Scripture linked the greatest commandment, right, what we talked about last week, to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, to love your neighbor as yourself. He links the greatest commandment to the widow's offering in this little passage. She was giving all of herself to the Lord. She was loving him with all that she had, literally. These two coins, all that she had, were given to him. She had made God her priority to the point of giving what she would have had to live on for the rest of the day. She was denying herself in order to give herself to God. You know, when we think of giving ourselves to God, we, um, I'll just be honest, we often don't even talk about our finances. We talk about giving our heart to God. We talk about, you know, giving our time to God and our gifts to God. And those things are good, but we, we just... We don't talk about it. We, we will give ourselves to the Lord in all the ways that are comfortable, but for many of us, we just, we just won't do that. We won't talk about the money side. Maybe your relationship with Jesus is a little bit like, like Jesus and money. Maybe your relationship with that is a little bit like this commercial that you may remember from a few years ago. One taste and you get it. I won't do that. It's fun, right? And we need to start some of this off with some lighthearted fun. Because we're going to spend the next several minutes, right, processing together what it means to give yourself to God financially. And, and we're going to do that, one, because that's what the widow did, and it's an example that she set. But two, because money is often the thing that we, won't, like, we don't want to give that to God, right? 
Like, it's the can of Dr. Pepper. I'll do anything for love, Jesus. I'll do anything for you, Jesus, but I won't do that. I ain't going to do that because I got a plan for my money. I got a plan for that. But here's the interesting thing. How we love God with our finances is also the thing that often unlocks our generosity in all of those other areas of life. You know, it's kind of like when you pick the farthest thing out there, and if you can let go of that, it helps you let go of all the things in the middle. It's kind of like that. Giving isn't about what percentage you give. It's about the power of giving out of poverty, right? That's what the widow did. We don't give because we still believe that we have a better plan for our money than God does. That's the bottom line. If we have a relationship with Christ and we choose not to give, oftentimes it's because we feel like we know what's better to do with our money than God does. So what does it mean to give out of poverty? Um, some other folks who are much more than I said things like this. The greatest gift is that which costs the giver most. Giving is measured not by how much is given, but by how much is less. Left. Sorry. Can't even read. Somebody else simply said, give until you feel it. Many of us have reasons why we don't give, but the problem is our decision to not give often results in greed that overtakes our heart, right? It's kind of that same attitude that we see, like, before long, when we choose not to give, we end up with this other attitude that says, I know what's best for me and for my money. So Jesus taught on this idea of money a lot, and in one of the other occasions he did, I want us to take a quick look at it. It's in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. So someone from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. And then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Right? He knows what's best for him. He built a successful business. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? And that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I read a devotional. Some of you from the church read it with me this week. And words in it pierced my heart. I picked the devotional for a completely different reason, and this was in there. It says, generous giving will break the grip of greed in your life. So whether or not you think you have extra, give and give generously. You've got to give to the point that it forces you to adjust your lifestyle. If you're not willing to give to the point that it impacts your lifestyle, then according to Jesus, you're greedy. If you're consuming to the point of having little or nothing left to give, you're greedy. If you're consuming and saving to the point that there's little or nothing left to give, you're greedy. That pinched a little bit when I read it. All right. Enough pinching. Let's talk about what God can do when we decide to be generous. What can God do with $2? What 
What can God do with $2? All right, so I'm not the greatest at math, but I can do this math. On average, there are 250 people that come to Christ Community Church at Governor's Square every week. Let's say we just gave $2 per person. So if you're like me and you've decided to procreate three times, that's $10 for my family. Right? Two times five, ten. Here's what's crazy. If 250 people gave $2 per person per week for a year, anybody got the quick math? How much? Close. 26. He says no. Maybe it's 24. I don't know. I told you I wasn't very good at math. But there's 52 weeks, right? Right? <laughs> but there's 52 weeks. <laughs> okay. All right. We got bonus weeks in there. Two bonus weeks. Great. Maybe this is the problem. Maybe we're just really bad at math. I just <laughs> what about, dude, you're like, slow down. You're a step ahead of me, right? All right. I like my bath better because it's $2,000 more. <laughs> if 250 of us gave $2 per person per week more for a year, that's $26,000. Here's what's awesome. In 2019, that would pay our rent payment. A building that we've been blessed with and now have the opportunity to use this as a hub for ministry in the coming years. But let's think outside of ourselves a little bit, right, Sailor? What's $3 per person? That's $39,000. You know, as we partner with ministries here in our local community, there are several ministries whose budgets for the year are less than that. And what that tells me is that, man, if we could find $3 per person per week, we can start an entirely new ministry. We could empower someone to maybe continue to, to do more in the area of homelessness. We continue to press into different needs of families and children and brokenness. $4? because I'm still working on 52 weeks, sailor. That's 52,000. <clears> and 52,000 dollars can start a new church. And as we become a church that wants to plant churches and reach communities outside of our own, man, how exciting is it to think that if I could find four dollars per person per week, four dollars in my budget, to work together with what the church is doing, to work together for God's mission, to love God and love people to go back into the brokenness, a new church family could be started. Let me tell you why it's important to think that way. I get requests pretty often to give. But those requests come with, like, a little bit extra. Like, hey, I got this money that I want to give, but I want to give it towards this, what I want it to go to. I want to give, let's say, $10,000 for this specific thing. Here's the thing, nine times out of 10, the gift to that ministry or that thing or whatever it is, like it ends up being a total of $10,000. Because now what happens is everyone else wants to give, but they wanna to give to their thing. They wanna give so that they can see it. They wanna give so that their name can be on it. They don't wanna just give. That's what's so powerful about how the Lord uses the church.
is that we don't just give more just to give more. We give more so that we can give together. That when we give $2 more a week, right, like God can do incredible things with that. He multiplies it in ways that we never could have thought of ourselves. How do we begin to, to think about even our money in, in a healthier way? Not to say this is here for me to do whatever I want to do with it, but to think, man, God has blessed me. He's blessed me. And he probably has a plan for his money. And this isn't my money, it's his money. And I want to trust him with it. God, will you help me to know what your plan is for your money? How do you give at Christ Community? Really quickly, right? Loveshotville.com slash give. You can give in the cans in the back. You can go online. You can set up recurring payments. You can give by text. You can mail your check in. I, there's lots of ways, but those are all very uh, accessible and there on the website for you to figure out, okay? And I think there's a, even a link in the U version. But when you give all of yourself to God's mission through the local church, you belong to God's plan for fighting injustice with the most powerful thing in the world the gospel of Jesus Christ as shared by the local church. Because no matter how talented you are, no matter how super powerful you are, no matter how many good ideas you have, your plan is not going to stand up to God's plan. And God's plan is the local church. We read it in the scripture that there is nothing in the world that will prevail against his church. God's plan for fighting injustice isn't just to fix the problems. It's to fix the people in the world, one person at a time. And fixing people is accomplished through the mission of the local church to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love him with all of themselves, and they love their neighbors with that same kind of love. I love when God, um, I love when God helps and, and leads and guides and directs. I hate this sermon, if I'm just being really honest. But this week, as I was reading, um, I read several blogs, and one came across this week that shared a letter that a lady had written back to her church after she had received the challenge to think about what she was giving to the Lord. I'm just going to read her letter. It says, when my husband and I first got married, we didn't give financially to the church at all. Even though we'd been Christians our entire adult lives, we were living for our own comfort, and that felt really, really good. What was ours was ours, and we worked hard for it, so we felt content to do with it what we wanted, when we wanted. When we were first challenged to give financially to church through the messages at church, we both felt this undeniable and simultaneous nudge to finally start giving. So we made a commitment to give, and then we did what came naturally to us. We gave nothing. Nothing at all for six months. But God, the faithful, loving pursuer of our hearts, wouldn't let us truly rest in our keeping. We couldn't shake the nagging, consistent, loving elbow to the ribs he kept throwing our way week after week. So one Sunday, we decided it was time. Time to make good on our commitment. We were scared to let go of our money. We were anything but cheerful about it. But as we began to loosen our grip, God began to peel away the desires for what our white-knuckled hold on our money could give us and taught us that 100% of our money is his money. How could we not give back to him just a small portion of what he'd given to us? Was that easy? Not a chance. Were we cheerful? Nope. We wanted to back out. 
Did we expect him to return the favor and give us more money? Of course we did. But God, in his very faithful goodness and love for us, gave us something far better than money. God blessed us instead. And for the first time since we moved here eight years ago, with the gift of deep relationships and community, as we began to live generously and open-handed with our money, God multiplied that desire into other areas of our life. And we began living generously with all that we have. We intentionally purchased a home with fewer bedrooms and comforts for us. One of our kids lives in a closet, man. But with more space to love others well. We welcomed a family of five to move in and live with us, something we never could have imagined doing years ago. God's blessing didn't come in financial reward as we expected, but in him giving us a better gift, deep and rich community, both with fellow Christians and with families who don't know him, so that our family could put the gospel on display in our home, with our resources, and through our daily life together. God took two fearful, selfishly content keepers and turned us into brave, hospitable, cheerful givers in all areas of our life. We live open-handed now with all that we have, not because we have excess, but because we've been loved, pursued, and blessed by a Savior who opened his hands on the cross for us. I'd love to tell you it's easy all the time, this open-handed life. It's not. We have to remind ourselves every day that our greatest riches are not found in things and comforts, but in changed hearts and lives. Our hearts are changed. Our kids' hearts are changed. And the people who come into our home and witness the gospel on display week after week, we lay it all down. All of it. Our money, our time, our home, we lay it all down. Because he laid down his very life for us. And that's why I, Blake Lawyer, won't apologize for asking you to give to the mission of Christ's community. Because I believe that in doing that, God wants to do something so much greater in your hearts and in your lives. Something far greater than money. What can this city, what can this region look like if the mission that God has called our church to is funded with generosity? In case you haven't heard this morning, there's a generation being raised up that will do far more than we will. Man, what would it look like to be able to send them with the gospel in years to come? I've talked often about four out of five people in our community that don't know Christ. Man, how do we keep that mission rolling? How do we continue to be a light in dark places here? And then, as I was thinking about that, the Lord just began to burden my heart for something so much greater. And I thought, man, if it's that way in Shelby County, what's it like in other areas? And I learned that, man, in 10 counties, like rural counties between Lexington and Louisville and Cincinnati, there's a quarter of a million people who aren't connected to Christ and to his church. That are living in that brokenness without any sense of hope that are living in that brokenness without knowing that God has a plan for their life. And the mission of the church becomes so important to me when I think about those things. I don't know much, but I know, Christ community, that God has more for us to do. He has more for us to do. 
But for us to be able to do more, we have to give him all of ourselves. Our time, our talents, our money, our hearts. Even though I don't have all the answers for what God will do next through his church, I know that giving myself to Jesus is the first step in answering those unanswerable questions. So if you've been around Christ community for a long time, the question I'll leave you with this morning is pretty simple. Will you join me? Like, like let's just let's keep going because God has more for us to do. There's brokenness that we can shed the light on. So we respond to the gospel this morning. I just want to ask you to consider that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, and that begs two questions. Number one, is Jesus your Savior? Some of you might be here this morning and you're like, I came to church and now they're talking about money. Well, Jesus cares about your money too. But Jesus cares about your heart far more. And for many of us, he knows that our money stands in the way of our hearts. And so the question is, is Jesus your Savior? If he's not, if you're still waffling in that brokenness, know that Jesus is standing there calling, saying, come, give yourself to me. Give yourself to me. I will make you new. I will save you. We're not uh, sitting at my kitchen table like Jeff talked about, but I would love to have a conversation with you. Our other pastor elders would love to have a conversation with you and talk about how Jesus can become your Savior. If you just believe and turn from your old way of life and give it to him. But the other question that is begged to be asked is, is Jesus your Lord? And this is a question that we have to keep asking throughout our Christian walk. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is your life on his plan or is it on your plan? If you're wrestling with that today and if you're not sure, if you can't answer wholeheartedly that Jesus is the Lord of your life, that he's the one who determines your steps, that you take things to him to figure out what's next, then I just want to ask you, encourage you to do this thing we call repent, right? To just say out loud, that crushes my spirit because you know what? Jesus is not my Lord. And to say, I don't know what's next, but I know that I have to give myself to him. I have to give my life to him and make him the Lord of my life. If one of those questions, is Jesus your Savior, is Jesus your Lord, if you can't say yes to both of those questions, and I just encourage you, Come to the altar. It's a song we're going to sing here. Just a minute. Come to the altar. Maybe you need to come down here and just get on your knees and pray. Maybe you need to come back there and talk to me or another pastor elder about how you, how you accept Christ. Maybe you need to take time before you come up and take the communion. Take a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice to remember what Christ did on the cross. Maybe you need to take some time to think about what your answers are to those questions, to repent, to turn. To say, Lord, your truth crushes me today. But I want that new life. I want that new heart. I want those new things in me.
Whatever your response to the gospel, my prayer for us this morning will be that the Holy Spirit will give you courage, strength, and boldness as you walk in whatever he is calling you to today. The band's going to come. Let's pray together. Jesus, we said at the very beginning today that <clears throat> you served us in a way that, that seems unimaginable. You gave your life. You opened your hands up and, and allowed them to be nailed to a cross to pay for my sins. And, uh, and yet, Father, we uh, very pridefully often say we believe we know what's best. So, God, I pray for um, a sense of brokenness that we would recognize in the midst of uh, our crazy lives that we're not right, we don't have it figured out, and that we need you, Lord. We need you. And as we recognize that need, Lord, I pray that you would meet us there in that place, wherever we are, if it's in our seats, if we move around, whatever it is, God, you meet us where you need, like where we need to be met. And so I pray, Father, that you, your spirit would lead in this time and each individual person in their hearts, in their minds, in their souls, God, down deep, I pray that you would work and change people's lives, one person at a time in this moment here today. I pray all this in the name, the powerful name, Jesus.